Good afternoon. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Welcome to YSI's webinar. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Shannon Miller. I'll be moderating the webinar. And joining me today are Ben Barker, YSI application engineer, as well as special guest Paul Shewitt, wastewater expert and lead analyst for AESC. Uh, they'll be discussing how to utilize sensor data to control wastewater processes and improve treatment. Uh, between the two of them, they have over 43 years of combined experience with online analytical instrumentation, so I'm sure they've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, just a couple quick things before we get started. The webinar is eligible for CEUs through the IACET, and we'll provide more information on how to get those in a post-webinar email. Uh, please feel free to use the questions and chat in the sidebar throughout the webinar. We'll get to those at the end during the Q&A. Um, and lastly, this webinar is being recorded and the recording will be available to watch on demand in a couple of days. Um, and with that, I will go ahead and kick things off and turn things over to Ben. All right. Thanks, Shannon. Uh, let me show my screen really quickly. All right. Can you see that? All right. I'm pretty yes, sure it's good. Yes, I can see it. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, whoops. All right. Uh, so, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for attending today's webinar called uh, Translating Measurements into Action, Utilizing Data to Improve Wastewater Treatment. And, of course, we have on with us Paul Shewitt. Uh, say hello, Paul. Are you there? Make sure, make sure another mic check, just to make sure everything's good. May have to unmute yourself as well. There we are. Yeah. Hey. Good morning, good afternoon to those. Paul Shewitt here, and thank you so much for joining. Yep, thanks for having, thanks for coming on. Um, so Paul and I actually met recently uh, working on a project together in utilizing YSI sensors for an ammonia-based aeration control system. Um, and I could tell how knowledgeable he was, so I really wanted to get him on uh, one of our next webinars. Uh, so here we are. So these are the topics we'll be covering today. Um, I will start with a quick introduction to wastewater control strategies. Then I will hand things over to Paul for the next two sections, defining treatment goals and objectives and implementing control strategies. Then I will finish up with how to acquire reliable data with online sensors and finally a quick Q&A. So let's get into part one, introduction to wastewater control strategies. First off, we'll be talking a lot about online sensors in this presentation and, of all, the, uh, and all the good things that sensors can do for us. So first, I wanted to lay out the top five benefits of online instrumentation. First uh, is access to continuous data. Uh, this is really a basis for how the rest of these benefits work, but even on its own, this continuous data gives us a baseline of data to work with. We get to see 24-7 uh, continuous trends um, that we would normally not be able to see. Second is monitoring profit process efficiency. With online data, we are able to quantify how well our process is working uh, to remove things like BOD, nitrogen, phosphorus, and solids. Uh, this can prove that things are working well or can let us know when improvements uh, can be made. Third, and maybe one of the biggest drivers, is reduce, chemical en uh, reduce energy and chemical costs. Uh, we'll talk about this one plenty for the rest of the day, so I'll just uh, head on to the next one here. Um, monitor, uh, monitoring for effluent permitting. The ability for an online sensor or analyzer to continuously measure at the effluent to ensure you're meeting uh, permits is a big stress relief. 
uh, your team has the ability to know exactly when a breakthrough is happening. And then lastly, reduce maintenance costs. Not only can your 24-7 data, uh, you get your 24-7 data, but you can also rely, rely less on TSS, ammonium nitrate, or even BOD lab samples. It really lightens the load on your operators. As I said though, uh, one of the biggest drivers is that reduced energy and chemical costs. So how can we achieve these uh, cost savings? Well, this is possible with something called uh, process control. So what is process control exactly? Well, a good de definition that I've found is the active changing of the process based on the results of process monitoring, which is designed to maintain variables at an optimum level. So basically, we are automatically controlling the process based on sensor measurements to maintain the optimal uh, process, which is, a, which is a great definition to start with. And to go along with it, we have the simple process diagram below describing how it works. Um, but this is a little confusing. So uh, to put it into better terms uh, to fit wastewater, I'm going to uh, make some adjustments to it. Um, so we'll start with the input, or for our purposes, this is the set point. Um, and this, this set point will be a certain milligrams per liter value or whatever value for maybe DO or ammonium or, uh, or nitrate, for instance. Uh, next, we have the error detector, error signal, and controller. This is where we take the set point and the feedback signal, compare how, how far off they are from each other, um, and all of these logic occurs within the PLC or SCADA. So from the controller, we have the actuating signal. So this is the signal coming from the controller that makes a change. So opening a valve or increasing pump speed or something like that, uh, which, causes a uh, which causes a change in the process. The output is the result of this change, which can be measured using our feedback elements, or in our case, our online sensors, which can then take the measurement and provide a feedback signal via 4 to 20, Ethernet IP, Modbus, whatever, uh, which then starts the process over again by comparing the set point to this feedback signal. Essentially what this does is allows us to maintain an optimal value for a parameter like DO Using, continuous, uh, using a continuous cycle of measure, compare, adjust. Measure, compare, adjust. So what are some examples of wastewater where process control can actually uh, can help our process? Well, here are three of the biggest opportunities uh, for process optimization. Aeration control, chemical dosing control, and solids inventory control, among other things. So first, let's take a look at the benefits of aeration control, which is usually done using dissolved oxygen sensors, ammonium sensors, and then, uh, and then blowers or valves that are adjustable to make automatic, automated adjustments to the aeration output. So the biggest benefit is the reduced energy costs. And what is the biggest operational expenditure for wastewater treatment plants? Well, it's usually running those blowers. So taking a look at the graph on the right, we can see how much extra DO we are spending when we are running high DOs. A typical DO, uh, to, a DO uh, set point to control for is 2.0 uh, milligrams per liter. Uh, so the graph starts there. But to de demonstrate just how much money we are wasting running higher DOs, we can move uh, up the running, uh, or we can move up the graph to running four milligrams per liter. Here, we are already spending 1.5 times the amount of money that is needed. And then if we are running a full blast with aeration uh, up to 78 or seven to eight milligrams per liter of DO, 
we're spending four times the amount of money needed um, in, in, uh, in costs on aeration. So not only does optimized aeration reduce energy, but it will create an environment that creates more consistent nitri nitrification, and it will also improve denitrification and phosphorus removal because it can get better, uh, better anoxic and anaerobic environments. Uh, next, we have dosing control. Some examples we have in wastewater are chlorine and UV for disinfection, carbon for denitrification, and then coagulant for orthophosphate or solid settling. One of the main benefits of a using a sensor uh, of using a sensor and process control in a, in a dosing application is to reduce how much you are buying and storing. These chemicals are typically overdosed, uh, which can get very expensive. Just looking at our graph on the right, this was a plant that was dosing ferric to remove phosphorus. After installing an analyzer at the beginning of 2013, uh, they were able to instantly reduce their ferric cost by almost 20,000, which is enough ROI to pay for the analyzer in the first year. Second, process control can improve process performance, as there are often process issues caused when you are over or, un or, over or under dosing a chemical. And the third, uh, third thing is that it can help reduce maintenance on uh, certain systems, so such as UV. Uh, the less you run your UV bulbs, the less you're going to have to exchange them, um, which saves you a lot of money in that instance as well. Finally, we'll talk about solids inventory control which is basically automated sludge wasting based on, TSS, based on an online TSS measurement and sometimes sludge level measurements. With uh, solids inventory control, we're aiming to maintain a stable SRT and FM ratio. Uh, and I say both because uh, when you, usually when you maintain one of the two, you're typically maintaining both. So it's a good thing to, uh, a good thing to control for. With a stable SRT, we can see a lot of benefits, including automated or optimized uh, activated sludge performance with more consistent nitrification, uh, denitrification, bio-P removal, or any instances where you might have too or too many bugs, which can cause some issues. And not only that, it can improve your sludge, so better settling and the right ratio of bugs, of types of bugs in your system. And that's something that Paul will uh, talk about in a little bit. Okay, so that's it for part one. Uh, we're going to start with our first poll question of the day. So we will uh, bring on Shannon to, uh, to start the poll. Thanks, Ben. Uh, the first poll question is, which automated control, control strategies do you use in your wastewater facility? Um, and we've got aeration control, dosing control, solids inventory control, or other. I'm going to go ahead and launch the poll. Give everyone a few seconds to answer. Looks like we still have a few votes coming in. Okay. Uh, with uh, over 70% of you having voted, we have 69% at aeration control. Oh, there's still a couple votes coming in. Um, and I do want to note that you could select more than one option here. It does say that. So we've got 70% at aeration control, 45% for dosing control, 35% for solids inventory, and 22% for other. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, 
the 33% for solids inventory control. I'm, I'm sure that's something Paul would like, a number Paul would like to see a lot higher. <clears throat> um, all right, so that brings us on to part two. Uh, Paul, if you are there, uh, we, let's go ahead and uh, pass it over to you. So, um, so yeah, take it away. Thank you so much, Ben. Great work, you guys. <clears throat> yeah, so we're gonna talk about defining goals and objectives uh, and what risks are involved in that. Next. So your typical treatment plant layout, uh, you've got preliminary treatment, primary treatment, secondary treatment, uh, solids handling, um, tertiary treatment in some cases, um, laboratory testing. You know, this is a fairly typical plant with anaerobic digestion, dewatering, thickening, and things like that. Uh, next. You know, before implementing a control strategy, and I want to emphasize the word strategy, uh, you must define your treatment goals. They may be different from your permit requirements. And we find at AESC in our travels and our optimization studies that many plants are over-processing. And, and I asked the question, why? And over-processing is expensive, it wears out equipment, and uses more energy. We are a, an energy-focused company. So when you look at why are you uh, over-processing uh, ammonia values from your permit limit of 10 milligrams per liter down to two, uh, some plants do it for a number of reasons. Their plant runs better at that. And some plants do it because they want that safety factor uh, in doing so. So you know, it'll influence the type of sensors chosen, the system design, and other variables. So treatment goals may be different from discharge permit requirements. Some facilities choose to overprocess. The cost of overprocess can be high, and we try to get very granular on showing customers what that cost is, uh, cost per million gallons, uh, cost of a particular unit process, and also lay that over demand charge costs and develop strategies to lower your energy usage uh, during certain periods of the day um, and to run your process with energy cost in mind. Um, selecting the right measurements and implementing the measurements is a key to efficient control strategies. Next. So knowing the right real-time measurements, I want to emphasize real-time. Uh, let's let's talk about that for a second. To, you know, real-time is a is a probe or an analyzer that's continuously reading a a number versus a grab sample. Um, in my experience as an operator over 40 years, I you know I tend to believe that grab sample result. You know, you take the same same sample at the same location in the same manner, and you get the results hours later, and it seems to be you know reliable. When you go to online real-time analyzer or probe, you see a dramatic difference in some cases. Um, so uh, real-time measurement is the is state-of-the-art sort of theme that we want to emphasize um, that will allow you to achieve your treatment goals, maintain your permit compliance, and operate your plant most efficiently. But understanding instrument performance, calibration requirements, service life, life cycle costs, Reliability is an important factor in selecting the right type of equipment. You know, most entities, sales folks, want to say the equipment, but may not be as, as assertive in helping the customer understand the commitment they need to make in shifting operator duties, lab tech duties, from maybe doing mundane, conventional grab sample and testing to cleaning and calibrating instruments and interpreting data. Uh, today's world involves a lot of data. Selecting the right data is a critical piece. But I want to emphasize the commitment that a person should make, an operator should make in 
maintaining the instruments and the integrity of the values that those instruments provide. Selecting wet chemistry over process probes is a critical uh, uh, item. You know, some probes require more maintenance, but they're lower cost to install. Uh, they're kind of plug and play. You drop them in and they give you a reading. Analyzers can be self-calibrating, self-cleaning, self but use reagents and still have a maintenance requirement, um, all of which comes back to, you know, owning the instruments and maintaining them and committing to, to getting the best values you can. Um, networking instruments into SCADA and or local PC is another important consideration. You know, advancements in technology with respect to wireless systems makes that very straightforward. YSI has a great radio transmitter that eliminates the need for massive conduit runs and multiple cables. All of the instrumentation readings and power come from a single cable pair when, when the instrument is powered up and they transmit, the data is transmitted versus wirelessly. Some utilities aren't, aren't doing that, but that is an option to consider. Defining challenges such as conduit runs necessary to transmit data, um, sometimes those can be very expensive and complicated and somewhat overlooked in the initial phases of, of designing a system. So wireless systems are something I'm very excited about and I see working very well in most cases. Next. So one of the things that I've done in my career in, in recent times, last five years, is, is uh, working as an ABAC controls manager, uh, designing ammonia-based DO control systems, internal mixed liquor nitrate control systems, SRT systems, solids optimization and thickening systems. Um, anyone that's trying to control their, their ammonia in their treatment plant should strongly consider an instrumented ABAC control system, where essentially you're simply measuring ammonia entering the plant, taking into consideration uh, uh, poor mixing and unequal distribution of loading. It's not intuitive, but when you start measuring ammonia values in, in multiple trains, in many cases you see where the trains are, unlo are loaded unequally. You have 20 milligrams per liter of ammonia coming in to train one and two and 30 and 40 in the other trains. There's a lot of reasons for that, side streams going into a single part of the basin, hydraulic issues. Uh, it's fairly common, so take that into consideration. But essentially, ABAC controls measures ammonia entering the system, your aeration basin, into your anoxic zone, uh, and then measuring ammonia on the other end of the aeration basin and calculating a solution for the optimized DO set point moment by moment. That's where the real-time controls comes in. You're measuring the load. You're calculating the demand for DO, 4.6 pounds of oxygen per pound of ammonia is a known value taking into consideration any anomalies with your particular plant and mixing and aeration and diffusers and things like that. But that's a great starting point. And you stabilize that ABAC control system with those instruments and controls. We could do that very effectively and simply in the, in the YSI controller with a PID loop. And there's other companies that do more advanced systems with software and, and online tech support and things like that. It, it's, it's kind of based on what you want to do. Do you want to own it and do it somewhat in-house with YSI's assistance, or do you want something that's basically in other people's hands that, that they're going to take care of it for you to a great degree? Internal mixed liquor control is another piece of that equation where you're measuring nitrates at the downstream end of your anoxic zone. Uh, many plants will test for nitrates, do grab samples and things like that, but their internal mixed liquor return pump typically runs at some 
nominal rate, quite often 100%. It's not controlled, it just runs. You're returning aerated mixed liquor back to that anoxic zone, and in many cases, you can be poisoning that anoxic zone by returning dissolved oxygen into that space. By measuring nitrates and DO at low levels in that anoxic zone, you can optimize the denitrification process by returning just the right amount of internal mixed liquor while avoiding the return of any DO into that space. So the compounding effect of, of ABAC, ammonia control, and nitrate control, now your audiotrophs and heterotrophs are in an optimal environment. They're balanced. They're receiving the right amount of DO. And then moving on to sludge retention time or automated wasting, we can't emphasize how important proper and stabilized SRT control, uh, the impact of your overall process. By stabilizing your SRT, and I say aerobic SRT, because aerobic SRT is very repeatable and reliable. So we measure TSS in the aerobic zone of your BNR plant. We measure TSS in the RAS and or WAS line. And those two values give you a very accurate reading of your pounds of solids in that system. Uh, by doing so, you can automate your wasting and use those numbers to calculate the proper amount of waste and the way to balance your overall biosolids mass in the system. What that does, it's like setting the foundation for your house. That SRT control and optimization will stabilize the process. And I, I liken it to riding a roller coaster with a hangover is what a lot of us have had to do over the years versus getting on a train. Properly set and stabilized and optimized SRT is, is getting on a train in a nice smooth ride which there again supports your ABAC, your, nitro, your nitrogen denitrification treatment processes. If your wasting is not controlled and optimized, you can waste out your autotrophs and heterotrophs, and then you lose nitrification and it takes weeks, if you know what happened, to recover in some cases. But then you're not stabilized, so I can't emphasize enough how, how important stabilized SRT is. Another system that we look at is optimizing your solid, solid systems, your thickening and dewatering and decanning in some cases. You know, we want to right-size your biomass. Are you carrying too much solids? You know, it's the old sludge age question. Uh, you know, some experienced operators can look at your sludge and, and make the comment, oh, you're, you're too old or you're too young. All that is great, and I, I do respect that immensely, that, you know, that physical look, see, feel, and touch. Uh, it's very important to running a plant, but having a value that you can take action on, you know, how do you decrease your sludge age? You waste more, but knowing how much to waste and how to waste is important. In thickening the watering systems, <clears throat> measuring your inflow solids and then calculating the optimized polymer dose in cases where you're using polymer can really enhance the overall performance of your, of your system. You avoid overdosing you avoid returning side streams that either have not enough or too much polymer, for example, or other chemicals that you might be using. So there's a compounding effect there. Reducing the side stream load to your, your system makes your overall system run better. You're also saving on very expensive chemicals, which the price of which are going out of control. The infrastructure challenges of delivering those chemicals are, are on the edge of collapse in some cases. So I think overall, these systems help you um, optimize across the board
measuring the strength of your side streams is another important factor. And maybe taking action, evasive action, to, to divert those side streams to pretreatment processes. Uh, in some cases, I've seen where side stream was, was really poisoning one part of the plant, but not until we put instrumentation in there were we able to detect that, you know, train two and three were getting the bulk of the side stream, whereas train one was not because that side stream came into that part of the channel. So, next. So here's an example of, of a condition that many plants face. They have an aeration basin. It's not like you can change that volume. You have a, you know, a, a biomass balance, an F to M ratio. And in many cases, without instrumentation, you're treating your ammonia load, for example, in the first half or two-thirds of that basin. But you don't know it. You don't see it. You're doing grab samples with instrumentation. We can measure that load coming in. We can measure that load going out of the basin. And in the case of this slide here, you may be, in many cases, uh, creating an, an aerobic digester in the last third end of your aeration basin, which can contribute to flock shearing, uh, pin flock in your clarifier, Again, back to good SRT optimization, you can avoid some of those pin flock issues and, and sludge laying in your clarifier that might be denitrifying, causing problems, carrying solids out. So let's go to the next slide. So an ideal situation and the ABAC controls instrumentation, IML controls instrumentation can allow you to right size your biomass and take full utilization of your aeration basin by optimizing the SRT and the biomass and, and creating an environment where you're getting good, healthy biomass, looking at your microscope every day to get a real good, strong understanding of what's going on in your aeration basins can help. But you're utilizing that space. You're not over aerating. You're not under aerating. You're applying the right amount of DO for the load moment by moment, not a DO set point that's arbitrary. They could be driven by the ammonia load. So the DO set point is two. The ammonia goes up, the blower kicks up high to a higher speed, and you're essentially maintaining that too, but you're over or under processing in many, many periods throughout the day. By using this instrumentation and ABAC control strategy, you can apply the right amount of DO based on the load at every moment in 15-minute intervals, for example, and that could be the number that you set. But this is a good example, this slide here, of, of how to properly set your biomass, and your F to M and SRT. Next slide. So we look at a, you know, a, con a, con a conventional MLE process, have an anoxygen and an aerobic zone. There's various iterations and, and other configurations that, that can do, do a better job and, and, you know, have more complication. But this is a very, very basic MLE process. We would put a probe. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, well, look, there's a slide here in a minute. I'll talk to that. But we have an aerobic zone, anaerobic zone, anoxic zone, uh, depending on how you're configured and the way the engineers designed it. The instrumentation can take into account the various zones. But having that real-time measurement and being able to trend your measures uh, against each other, influent flow and ammonia load and DO and temperature and mixing or suspended solids, to see when those uh, you know, errant loads come in the middle of the night or when you're not expecting them. Uh, quite often you believe the numbers you, you, you get from the lab, 
And when you get real-time measurement, things can change. You can get numbers that you didn't expect. Let's go to the next slide. So again, requirements for denitrification, dissolved oxygen, two milligrams per liter uh, based on the load. But we have done systems where we went from a, a setting of two uh, setting of two milligrams per liter of DO when your peak load of ammonia comes in to a, a rearrange from 0.5 to 1.5. Took me a long time in my career to believe that. I was taught that you know two is the bare minimum. But from an energy perspective, if your system is stabilized by using instrumentation and controls, you can get to those ranges. You can reduce that DO to 0.5 in the middle of the night when your ammonia load goes to a bare minimum. If the overall health of your plant improves. Uh, other values, pH between 6.8, alkalinity, when you have stabilized and optimized uh, nitrification, you recover a significant amount of alkalinity, which only enhances the environment that your biomass live in and makes them work better. Or p-values of plus 100 to minus 350 or to plus 350. And SRT requirements of minimum of four days, uh, and I've seen SRTs as high as 20, 21 days in colder climates, but being able to stabilize that SRT throughout the day when diurnal flows bring in solids and your mixed liquor suspended solids rises up, you may not see that if you're not measuring TSS in your aeration basin, but your SRT changes along with it. And again, you create this roller coaster effect and instable, uh, unstable environment. You also have the ability to, to detect uh, toxic substances coming into the plant, dumps, and things like that. Let's go to the next slide. So in the aerobic zone, it provides oxygen-rich environment uh, for which nitrification bacteria can proliferate, nitromonas and nitrobacter. Um, in both BNR configurations, aerobic zones will follow anoxic zones and anaerobic zones. Um, aeration is provided by blowers, diffusers, systems, and mechanical aerators. One of the things I want to emphasize here, too, is to consider developing an aeration strategy it's one of the things that we look at at AESC when you do our energy action models and plans for customers is what is your aeration strategy? Well, we have a deal at set point of two. Okay, well, let's look at a strategy that might take into consider demand charge. Most customers have what's called demand charge on their electric bill. They don't see it, but it is an important consideration when running your plant. In trying to bring energy use at the unit process level to process control discussions, you can over your overall energy efficiency can improve dramatically. So if you look at demand charge, say in PG&E territory in California, from 4 to 9 p.m., customers pay a significant more costly kilowatt hour charge than during off-demand charge or peak charge. Uh, in, in addition to that, you have brownouts, you have other considerations that, that make this more important. But if your utility has a demand charge system, you should take that into consideration where you might lower your DO set point during that demand period and shut off your dewatering and reduce your pumping and return levels and other, other power-hungry processes to bare minimums. You can do that with instrumentation because you can measure the values and the results and maintain compliance, but the compounding effect of having a strategy that reduces your power consumption across the plant during demand charge period is significant. You know, you can save 20 to 30 percent on your energy bill by just making those adjustments and having automation that does them for you. Having good, solid 
blowers that do that have a lot of turndown, uh, turbo blowers that have inherent more efficient uh, output and energy use. Uh, your, the condition of your diffusers, the condition of your basins all play into that. So let's go to the next slide. So we look at dissolved oxygen levels of, of 0.1 in an anoxic zone. And again, I want to emphasize how important it is to make sure that you're not returning high DO mixed liquor back to your anoxic zone. And for example, if you have low ammonia loading and you're running on a strict DO set point, the middle of the night, for example, you may re be returning one or two parts per million of ammonia of DO back to your anoxic zone. Denitrification ceases to happen during that period, and you put you put that zone in jeopardy of of failing or going into upset by returning DO there. So I encourage you to look at measuring DO and having a nitrate probe that controls that internal mixed liquor pump and responds to DO values over, say, 0.5, for example. When that 0.5 is hit, that, that internal mixer pump either reduces speed or even shuts down momentarily. Um, so we look at 2.86 milligrams per liter of BOD per milligram per liter of nitrate. Carbon dosing required may not be sufficient in wastewater. You know, I would consider you, uh, converting to a step feed type of arrangement. Uh, the cost of adding um, carbon can be high. But I wouldn't be my first choice to buy a third-party, you know, carbon source. Simply pumping a, a side stream of mixed liquor or side stream from your dewatering downstream of your aeration basin may provide that carbon that you require in some cases. Next slide. So an oxygen provides. Oh, there you go. That's the slide I wanted. Very good. Um, yeah. So here's a good a good example of an instrumented system for ABAC. We're going to measure pH or P in some cases, but primarily we're going to measure uh, nit uh, nitrates in that anoxic zone. We would also have either a wet chemistry or an, an ammonia probe upstream of your anoxic zone, either in your primary effluent uh, or in your primary effluent feed channel to your aeration basins. Sometimes we put them in each basin. One of our customers we're working with right now has eight trains and, and we know from experience and their testing that all eight of those trains have different loadings because of the hydraulics in that feed channel. It's hard to believe until you see the numbers, but there were significantly different ammonia loadings going to each train. Uh, for many years, they were treating them as one load, but each train had a different load and they, they had to put a probe in each one. So we're measuring ammonia and nitrates in the anoxic zone. In addition, measuring DO, TSS, and again, ammonia, whether it be by probe, or as you can see to the far right, the uh, ammonia analyzer wet chemistry uh, can be an option. Um, but for low-level ammonia, the wet chemistry does, does a more reliable job of measuring low-level ammonia down to 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per liter. The probes have their, their, uh, their concerns. You know, you have to clean them. You have to calibrate them. They tend to drift over time. 45 to 60 days, you need to make sure you calibrate, which is a very simple process. But again, back to my earlier comments about owning the instrumentation, maintaining it, calibrating, and changing out the elements when necessary. So this is a great design here. We look at measuring sludge blanket in the clarifier, and also TSS in the RAS line to optimize your, your biosolids and right-size your biomass. That would all be used to calculate uh, your SRT, 
and your waste rates, which could change throughout the day. Your urine flow brings in solids, your mixed liquid suspended solids rises up. You want to maintain a window 2300 to 2700, for example, and an SRT of 11, for example. Uh, that type of control system is very simple to set up and thereby stabilize your SRT and get better performance out of your overall system. Um, by optimizing the upstream anoxic and aerobic zones and having good balance of return and aeration and TSS levels, you are more, more likely, more assured to have better settleability, better defined interface on your sludge blanket with better performance of sludge blanket indicators. But for example, if you have a lot of pin flock and the blanket indicator is, is not working as well as it could, your TSS probe in that RAS line may show that your, that your RAS concentration is increasing above your set point, which would send signal back to the RAS pump to increase RAS flow. And just the opposite, if your RAS concentration goes from say 3,500 milligrams per liter to 500 milligrams per liter, that's very likely coning, you're pulling clear water out of the clarifier, and you're costing yourself a tremendous amount of energy by having to reprocess that flow. So we look at all those, those side streams and reprocessing events, including spray bars and wash racks on, on headwork screens, and try to show how much it costs you to have all that water being reprocessed. I was at a plant a few weeks ago, and 25% of their flow is being reprocessed through spray bars. So 125,000 gallons a day is being sent in a circle within the plant. And they didn't really think about that. And it was, it was unnecessary, but it's something they've been doing forever. So just things to think about. Let's go to the next slide. All right, so this is the second poll question of the day. So let's pull in Shannon one more time. Thank you. Uh, so the second poll question, which of these sensors do you use in your activated sludge basins? And you can choose more than one here. Let me go ahead and launch it. Still got some votes coming in here. All right. Thanks for your responses. I'm going to go ahead and share the results here. So we have 85% for DO. 43% uh, for TSS, 25% for ammonium, 23% for nitrate, and 49% for pH and ORP. Cool. Thanks, Shannon. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. 85% uh, for DO. That's, uh, that's really high. <laughs> Almost everybody. Um, cool. So let's uh, get on with part three, which is, of course, uh, still... Um, still, uh, still, Paul. So, um, go ahead whenever you're ready. I just want to comment on the on the TSS probe uh, poll number. Uh, yeah. One consideration with having continuous monitoring of your mixed liquor suspended solids 
is the cost and in hours and time and supplies to do grab samples, go to the lab, run the test, do all the calculation, enter the data. With continuous TSS in your mixed liquor, you don't have to do that anymore. You know, it's a half of a full-time position in many cases, and sometimes more to collect samples, transport them, do all those tests. And the, the accuracy of that result is, is really not very good. With continuous TSS reading, you have a trendable result that you can, that you have it forever. You can see what's happening to the, to the mixed liquor suspended solids and thereby your SRT at every moment in the day and throughout the year, different times of year. It's a fantastic tool uh, to, to see trends and to better understand the impacts of seasonal changes or side streams or, or dumping in your sewer system collection system. So I just want to emphasize that. So let's go on to the next slide. Yeah, so here's a system that we recently designed. We're in the process of implementing now. This is eight trains, uh, plug flow left to right, You've got the anoxic zone followed by the aeration zones. Uh, each one of the green boxes or green circles is a DO probe. They've got uh, automated um, actuated DO control valve, which allows them to adjust the DO in each zone. Uh, in the front end in the red line, which is kind of hard to see, we've got uh, ammonia nitrate probes in each one of the trains. And again, this is, this is necessary because they know that each one of the trains is getting a significantly different loading. The feed channel runs around this left line to the left side of the page. And because of the hydraulics and the nature of the way the flow comes from the primary clarifiers, each train has a some fairly significantly different loading, thereby in order to optimize each one of these eight trains, um, it's necessary to have an ammonia reading for each one of those. In addition, the, the difference between an ammonia probe and an ammonia nitrate probe is, is a pretty small number, 1500 bucks or something like that. So that's just a consideration to have both of those readings in that section of your plant is really valuable. Um, I would encourage this customer to put in DO probes in an anoxic zone to ensure that they're not poisoning that anoxic zone and thereby protecting uh, those organisms in that zone. But downstream from here, about halfway down downstream on the aerated side, we've got a straight ammonia probe. Uh, all of this system is set up with wireless transmitters, radio transmitters, and a simple receiver at the blower master control panel will receive those signals and, and give feedback to each one of the zones to control DO. The first probe will give the signals to control DO in the first two zones in the middle of the, of the plant, and the last signal will be like a polishing signal. If you haven't met your ammonia goals on that second DO probe downstream, or second ammonia probe downstream, then the, that will send a signal back to increase DO to those last two zones. So here's the top down of the, of the plant that we were working on. You can see the eight trains left to right, three primary clarifiers. Uh, that's before we did the instrument system. Let's go to the next slide. And then here is the layout um, of, of the system itself, the different zones. Let's go to the next. Okay, so that, that concludes that piece of it, but it gives you an idea of the, the, the design elements of every treatment plant. They're all different. 
and we need to look at it and be objective and get eyes on pipe, as I say. So I want to emphasize the importance of measuring TSS and narration basin, as I spoke to earlier. You know, it's a fundamental process control parameter for biological wastewater treatment. Influent loading, F to M, SRT, BOD, biosolids management, uh, influent and effluent percent removal and discharge compliance are all critical factors. F to M ratio is a critical process control consideration. But having instrumentation to be able to effectively measure in real time takes it to a new level. And again, continuous measurement of mixed liquid suspended solids it's necessary to optimize your treatment system. In addition, there are some tools out there that can actually measure um, the active percent of organisms in your treatment plant. It's called ATP testing. It measures active organism concentrations. It gives you a value of 30 to 50 to 60% active, which is another consideration in measuring the performance of your treatment plant. Next. So here's an SRT control strategy. I'm going to measure mixed liquid suspended solids. I'm going to measure RAS solids. And between those two values, taken in consideration temperature, which you would get that number off of your DO probe, um, you can calculate the optimal wasting rate moment by moment, rather than either batch wasting or wasting uh, continuously or semi-continuously. We know that, that optimized SRT and optimized wasting can have an overall compounding effect on your plant performance, better sellability, less pin flock, uh, in, in some cases, less biomass. You know, when I say right-sizing your biomass, this is the first step in being able to do that. Next. So here's a, here's a value of mixed liquor suspended solids and SRT. You know, we look at the SRT, we started to believe our SRT was, let's just call it 11 days. But when you have the instrumentation, you can see that the continuous real-time measurement of, of SRT with the instruments that we spoke of in the last slide, uh, without optimized SRT and wasting, automated wasting, you see that your SRT is all over the place. And, and that creates an unstable environment and is not conducive to getting the most out of your organisms. Next. Got about six minutes. Let's go to the next slide. So we want to measure aerobic SRT uh, just in the aerobic zone. Uh, using MCRT, you have the potential to skew the results because it's very difficult to accurately measure suspended solids or pounds of solids in a clarifier. Your blanket is moving up and down with hydraulic influences and other factors throughout the day. Uh, it is a number that most of us have used in our career but in an ABAC controls or SRT controls strategy, we want to use aerobic SRT. Um, just a couple of values, WAS, waste activated sludge, and mix it for suspended solid. Let's go to the next. Um, good settling. You know, we want to keep it in that good settling zone. By having automated wasting and SRT optimization, you can keep your organism population in the right zone. Again, I emphasize looking at your microscope every day and getting a good visual of your biomass. I think we're in a little bit of a time crunch here. Important considerations, defining treatment goals, understanding the value of control systems, establishing a commitment to calibrate and maintain instruments. Let's go to the next. I think you're going to All take right. over from here, Ben? Yeah, thanks. Yep, I will. Thank you very much.
Uh, all right, so uh, all right, to finish it off really quickly, uh, I'm gonna get into part four, uh, acquiring reliable data with online sensors. Okay, so uh, how can you achieve reliable data from your sensors? Um, it's really, really simple. Uh, by following these steps we have uh, displayed up at the, uh, on the right. Okay, um, so we'll talk, I'll talk briefly about each of these in, in uh, more detail, uh, but the main steps are to ensure proper application and setup, uh, stick to a preventative maintenance schedule, uh, meaning you're routine, routinely cleaning, uh, replacing consumables, and calibra calibrating regularly. And of course, this will vary by sensor. Um, and then finally, verify the sensor's performance. You will not know if a sensor is providing good data unless you have reference data to compare it to. Okay, so briefly about proper application and setup. Uh, what do I mean by application? Uh, I mean that the sensor you choose should be designed for the type of water you are measuring in. Um, being able to achieve the goals you have for the sensor, uh, like are you trying to control a valve or are you just trying to monitor um, for a value? Um, environmental requirements, will the sensor uh, and controller be able to handle the environment you are putting it into? Um, and then communication requirements. Are If you are, uh, uh, if you need to export data to your SCADA system, does it need Ethernet IP or does it need Modbus uh, or 4 to 20 milliamp signal? Um, you'll have to pick the correct uh, controller to do that. And then setup of the sensor upon installation. Uh, is it installed correctly? Uh, is it in the correct location? Uh, are there correct settings input? Uh, has there been official startup and commissioning by a rep or manufacturer? Um, ensure you are meeting all of these and that will help you achieve uh, reliable data. Um, for your for your process. Now, the, the biggest factor in the success of a sensor is how it's cared for. So a dirty sensor is going to provide reliable data 0% of the time, so keep that in mind. While a sensor in the correct application that is also well-maintained will provide reliable data nearly all of the time. So um, so it's very important in my, in my opinion that uh, Keeping a sensor clean and maintained is uh, the most important part of uh, utilizing instrumentation. Now, the difficult thing for operators is that the requirements for sensors vary greatly. Some of the applications may have tougher environments that requires weekly cleaning compared to others where a sensor can go months between cleaning. Also, the type of sensor is a factor, where some may require very little hands-on time and others are a little bit more time-consuming. This is something that sensor manufacturers are always trying to make simple uh, more simple for operators. Um, we're always trying to make sensors and analyzers easier for, to use for you guys. So what is involved with a PM schedule? Well, there's three main parts, routine cleaning, replacing consumables, and calibrating. As I said a minute ago, sensor cleaning may be the most important aspect of maintenance uh, uh, in ensuring reliable data. I mean, this is wastewater. So, you know, you have uh, dirty water with solids. Uh, even if it's a, at the effluent, you'll have uh, solids that might be able to build up or even algae. Um, so this is a tough environment. And this is, these are uh, highly analytical pieces of equipment. Um, so, uh, so, you know, make sure that they are, uh, that they are well maintained. With that said, uh, sensor cleaning does not have to be complicated. Uh, the more you keep up with it, the better your sensor sensor will perform, plain and simple. So there are two types of cleaning, manual and automatic cleaning systems. Uh, really quickly, there are two points that I'd like to make on this slide. Uh, the first is that manual cleaning is always needed. 
in some instances very frequently, depending on, you know, if it's in a very dirty application with very sticky solids, um, and sometimes not very often at all, uh, if you are at the effluent of, every, of a uh, tertiary treatment plant. Um, and then in uh, the second point is that automatic cleaning systems are great as they extend the life or the time between cleanings, uh, but manual cleanings will still always be required in some fashion. Um, so for instance, an automatic air blast cleaning system, uh, you may be able to go three months without cleaning a sensor in some applications with a cleaning air blast. But if you're dosing, for instance, like a ferric chloride up just upstream of it, uh, that optical window, even with an air blast, is still going to get covered um, pretty quickly. All right, next we have replacing consumables. Uh, regular replacement is essential. Uh, uh, sorry, one second, checking time, okay. Uh, is essential on sensors that have consumable items, such as uh, electrodes or caps. Um, this is very dependent on sensor type. So sensors like electrodes, uh, sensors that have electrodes with like pH or P, ammonium, nitrate, um, they have a lifespan. So these must be replaced regularly uh, and usually more often, more like on a yearly to two years basis. While sensor cap on a DO uh, may not or may only need to be replaced every two to five years. So I'd suggest replacing uh, these consumable items on a regular basis rather than uh, especially if it's on a especially if it's a control point sensor such as in an ammonium sensor in an ammonium based duration control system. Um, so yeah, uh, next slide is going to be calibration. Um, so without calibrations, sensor data is not reliable. Uh, whether that is a factory calibration, uh, calibration with standards, or a, a calibration where you're matching to a lab standard, uh, there always need to be some type of relationship between the raw data from the sensor or from the sensor and the number output by the sensor. So this is a this is exactly what a calibration does. A sensor with like an ammonium ISE or pH sensor actually measures millivolts, but the calibration correlates those millivolts to an ammonium or pH value. With the sensors that have drifting components like uh, pH or ammonium, uh, periodic cal calibrations must be performed to ensure this relationship between millivolts and the value are accurate. Um, however, some sensors have automatically compensating systems to account for drift. And this is usually in the optical sensors like DO, TSS, or UV. Um, these usually require less calibrations or it can just run off the ca factory calibration. And now onto verification. Why is this important? Um, well, as I mentioned before, it verifies sensor performance. How else will we know if a sensor is accurate or reliable if we do not test the readings of the sensor? It, is also, uh, it also ensures correct function of the sensor and a good calibration. So if our sensor's readings are matching relatively close with the verification measurement, then we can be confident our sensor is working correctly and the calibration is good. And then finally, a little bonus uh, slide, but uh, it also very important uh, is, what do you do if you suspect your sensor is inaccurate? And these are the first five steps that I would choose to do. Uh, first one, I would uh, go ensure the sensor is clean is the quickest action to perform and probably the most common cause of inaccuracy issues. So if you feel the need to uh, uh, verify or recalibrate, you'll have already cleaned the sensor as well. Um, next, I would verify the sensor reading with a reference measurement. The only way to know if the sensor is inaccurate is to know exactly what that lab reference, you know, the real value is. 
If the verification measurement uh, confirms the sensor is still off, then I would recalibrate the sensor. Um, and still, if this does not fix this, the issue, then I would consider replacing the consumables on the sensor, if you have them, uh, or con contacting the manufacturer's tech support. Okay, so uh, that's, uh, we've gone a little bit over time, so I'm just going to pass right over this. Um, of course, all these sensors are part of IQ SensorNet, so if you want any more information, you can reach out to us. Um, but I wanna give uh, a Paul a second to plug his uh, company, AESC, um, so if you could talk hop back on, um, he has two quick slides. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Um, yeah, AESC is Alternative Energy System Consulting based in Carlsbad, California. And we focus on energy optimization efficiency. We currently manage the RAPIDS program for PGE in California, as well as some uh, emerging technology programs. Um, so we specialize in, in optimization, energy use, uh, doing reports and studies that that look at your plan from the cost to operate and trying to, to net, network energy use at the unit process level to process control, making you know, energy use a process control decision. Next slide. Yeah, so we do you know, energy efficiency engineering, measurement and verification, water wastewater optimization, energy modeling, portfolio benchmarking. We have software solutions, uh, Praxis cloud-based software for energy dashboards. And we also uh, provide large-scale solar and battery systems, all of which are being used in wastewater treatment plants and water plants across the country. So that's all I have. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, if you have any questions, reach out to myself or Ben, and here's time for Q&A. Yeah, uh, yeah, so also thank you, Paul, for coming on and putting all this work into this. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's been fun. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if we have some questions for Q&A. Uh, we'll bring Shannon back in to see what we have. Yeah, thanks guys. Um, so we did have a few questions come in. Um, first one, let's see, for solids optimization and thickening and dewatering optimization, do you need to conduct pilot studies to obtain optimum process values to shoot for with online instrumentation? That, that is an option. Um, you know, pilot studies can be challenging and, and misrepresentative. I, I usually start with taking a sample of the biomass, sending it to various different manufacturers for evaluation. Um, but we're not trying to invent something new here. These are, these are known process strategies, and there's lots of vendors that provide them and lots of uh, controls uh, options for how to do it. So it's not like an experiment. An activated sludge is fairly consistent and yeah, we know I mean I have customers that are taking raw WAS and going right to a thickener and a press without any digestion and doing it very successfully uh, optimizing the the SRT and measuring uh, mixed liquor suspended solids and RAS solids is is pretty pretty straightforward it works thanks um, I know that we're a few minutes over those of you who want to stick around we have a few more questions to go through but I did want to note quickly um, if you're looking for CEU information, you'll receive a follow-up email within the next couple of days. Um, and thanks for attending today if you do happen to need to leave. Let's see, the next question, any thoughts on controlling centrate side stream loading? I've been toying with the idea of sending less than 20% more at low flow when there is more detention time. Excess DO due to minimum mainfold 
manifold pressure flow requirements. I'm sorry if I didn't read that properly. <laughs> yeah, could you could you reread that? I, okay. I missed a couple of key the words there. Faults on controlling centrate side stream loading. Um, Ventoy, yeah, the that, idea of sending less than 20% more at low flow when there is more detention time and excess DO due to minimum manifold pressure and flow requirements. Yeah, absolutely. That That is the uh, a latent loading that many plants experience. Sometimes they don't know where it comes into the to the aeration basin. Sometimes it goes to the headworks. But, you know, you know it's coming. I encourage you to measure ammonia uh, in that side stream. And I've, I've been very successful at diverting those side streams to other other holding basins and, and metering it back uh, and not impacting the plant. I've seen ammonia values of over a thousand parts per million in side streams. You know, especially if you have a digestion, you're you're prone to having high ammonia loads. And sometimes that that ammonia sits in a wet well or some kind of uh, you know basin in between the dewatering system and and the um, and the and the plant. So definitely, you want to consider that and look at that and measure it. There are a number of side stream treatment processes out there. Uh, and if you think you have a significant problem, um, that's definitely something to look at. Okay, thanks, Paul. What does PINFLOC indicate? Well, PINFLOC indicates uh, poor settling. And it, it can be caused by what I view as is, is primarily non-unoptimized SRT. Uh, and hydraulic flows. If you have good EQ and good SRT control, you're less likely to have pin flock. But I'd say the majority of plants I go to, I see pin flock in the clarifiers. And, you know, and oftentimes you see big floaters and large chunks of solids coming over the weirs. Um, so back to my emphasis on SRT optimization uh, will help with reducing the amount of pin flock and also proper DO control uh, whether you're in a BNR situation or not, if you're over aerating, you're very likely to have pin flock and poor settling. And, and you know, what does that mean? What does over aerating mean? It means you're providing more air than is necessary to treat the load. How do you know what, how much air is necessary? Using the tools as we described in this presentation, it gives you real-time values of, of loading and demand, DO demand. Well, thanks, Paul. Um, thanks, Ben. Thanks to everyone that stayed with us a few minutes past the hour. Um, I hope that everyone found the webinar to be helpful and that you learned something today. Uh, we will follow up on any questions that we didn't talk about or get to today. And uh, keep an eye out on your inbox for more information on how to get CEUs if you're interested for today's session. Thanks for attending, and everyone have a great day. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, everybody.